Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome back to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. I hope you've been enjoying the shows. Today, we are joined by one of my good friends and a guest that we've been trying to get on for a little while. I think it's been over a year, but for good reason. She had a baby, and now we are going to be joined by Pam Kapalit. Hello, I did have a baby. I'm so glad I'm finally, the baby is literally almost one. So it has been over a year. I'm so glad to be on. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I mean, thanks for coming on. And Pam and I met like, I think it's been two years ago. I I want to say it was two years ago that we met and just like loved what she was doing in the space, loved her firm. I'll let her tell you a little bit more about that. But Brunch and Budget is just, I love the name, love the website. And then some other work that you and your husband are doing. I mean, you guys are doing great things in the industry for people of color, and we absolutely love it. And this was a long time coming. So thank you for coming onto the show. And just, you know, I'm excited. So tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, like who you are, what you do, and why you do it. Oh, yeah. Happy to. Happy to. So, oh, my gosh, where do I begin? I have a literature degree. Surprise, everybody. <laughs> I actually had no idea I wanted to do finance or financial planning or anything like that, especially when I first started. I am a children of immigrants. I guess I'm technically an immigrant myself. I was actually born in the Philippines and moved here when I was two. And so, you know, I grew up with the line of like, get good grades, then go to a good college, then get a good job, and then you'll have success in this country, right? Like that is what I was taught. That's what I thought I had to do. And my parents were very disappointed when I told them that I was going to get a literature degree. But I found my way regardless. The reason I got into finance was actually I was teaching a financial literacy camp for kids in college. It was just a random Craigslist ad that I answered, and it literally changed my life. I was teaching kids who were as young as 10 how to budget, how to understand credit cards, how to start their own businesses. I was teaching them stock market language. I was teaching them about real estate and buying homes. And I was like, I wish I got this when I was 10. I wish I got this when I was 12. I wish I was getting this in college, and I didn't. And so I graduated from UC Santa Barbara, and I realized that I really wanted to get into the financial services industry to really understand it with the intention of going back and teaching kids. And what ended up happening was this long journey, this was like 12 years ago, I started in the financial industry in 2008, best time ever. (laughs) And, (laughs) And my eyes were just like wide open. I really had no idea how complex this industry was. I really had no idea how confusing it was for me and for my peers. And I realized that while I wanted to help kids, my friends were literally coming up to me at parties and asking me questions about their finances. They didn't know how to manage their credit cards. They were afraid to look up their credit score. They didn't know how their 401k worked. And so I realized that there was this need for help and also this level of, I'm so scared to look. And that's really where the idea of brunch and budget came from was how do I make people feel comfortable talking about their finances? And literally the idea of brunch came to me and I was like, oh my God, let's have brunch. Let's do this together. Let's break bread. Let's eat food. Let's find common ground. And I realized that 
brunch and budget literally started off as trading food for advice with friends and it turned into a way for me to have a meaningful financial conversation with my clients and so that was the genesis of brunch and budget was just like a party idea that a friend gave me and it just turned into this whole big thing <laughs> i'm in brunch and budgets you said pay me in food for my advice <laughs> like i might do that now <laughs> like i have a sign up that says will work for good food can't be just regular food. it's got to be good food it got to be, be home, home cooked brunch i'll do home cooked brunch we got to have some mimosas oh yeah possibly some buddy marys and you can never go wrong with a michelada so <laughs> But I love that because what you did with finance by making it brunch and budget is, you know, conversational. We already know Sunday brunch is like kind of a relaxed time. And so it automatically disarms, I think, people when you say brunch in a budget. Because if you just say budget by itself, it's like, oh, my God, no, not a budget. Yeah. But if I'm going to get brunch, then we can talk about a budget. Yeah, you can talk about anything over brunch. That's the thing that I found. And I realized that, you know, brunch and budget kind of started off as a gimmick and really became a way for people who have literally talked to no one about their finances, right? They're so scared to look and so scared to talk to anyone to really like facilitate that conversation. And I think that's what's been so valuable about having this component that seemed fun, but actually was really a way to get people to open up. And I think when you think, when I'm looking at this and I'm thinking about the way that you've positioned yourself with the brunch and budget, I think, you know, about minorities, like that's something like breaking bread is, I remember with my grandmother, feeding people was like her thing. We always sat around the table. We always ate dinner at the table. Like it didn't matter what, we always ate dinner at the table. And breaking bread, like I don't consider COVID, you know, it's changed some things, but if you haven't had dinner at someone's house and ate their food, how can that really be your friend? And I'm not, you know, brunch is going to be, you know, we go out to a restaurant, we eat, that's cool. But when you really, like, when it's your friend, when it's your girl, when it's your homie, partner, you know what I mean? They got to come to the crib, right? You got to come to the crib. We got to make some food. We got to break bread. This is how we're really going to get together. And I think that's something that is unique with the brunch and budgets, that you bring that almost family-like feel, that friend feel, that comfortable conversation over food and money. And I absolutely love that. So that, that's awesome. But that's not the only thing you're working on. What else is going on? I mean, we'll get into that because I want to talk about the sea change. I want to talk about some of the other things that you're working on. And basically, you know, financial planning for people of color, like when you think about that, when you're thinking about financial planning for people of color versus people that are not people of color, so white people, white people. how do you change? Like, talk to me about that. Just talk through that yeah. whole thing as you see it. Oh, yeah. I love that you mentioned that food was such a critical part of your background and your history and your family. Because I think one thing that was interesting about brunch and budget that happened maybe accidentally on purpose is that over half of our clients are people of color. And I did not have that experience in wealth management. I had the complete opposite experience where there were no people of color clients. And so I didn't have training on how to help my POC clients. And I realized that I was having to plan for them completely differently than my white clients. And if we just think about like general patterns and demographics, right? My POC clients were more likely to be first generation immigrants. They're more likely to be first generation and go to college. They're more likely to be the first generation, have a professional salary. They're probably making more money than their parents ever made in their life. Often they're often sending money back home to their parents, to other family members. They're more likely to have student loan debt. They're less likely to have a history of home ownership in the family, less likely to expect an inheritance. 
all of these things together made traditional quote unquote financial planning or financial planning for white people, if we're going to be real, it made it not as relevant. It made it more difficult to plan for my POC clients because I was only trained to plan for white clients. I was only trained to plan for expecting the inheritance, getting the good job, having a family safety net, all of these things, right? Even if you think about the CFP courses, if you think about what we learn in CFP, there is no course on student loan debt. There's the assumption that you don't have any, right? There's no course on debt at all. There's no course on budgeting. There's no education for the advisors who get their CFPs to be able to help clients through budgeting and saving because there's the assumption that the money's already there and we're just moving it around. And I think when I started working with POC clients, I started realizing that I need to learn a whole new set of financial skills and also a whole new set of financial coaching skills to be able to not only help them manage their finances, but to understand the emotional impact their finances have probably had on them their entire lives. And so a big part of my training has included actually getting an accredited financial counselor designation so that I could understand how to be more of a coach to my clients as well. I think that the other thing about working with people of color that is not acknowledged enough is that the metrics for success are also based in white wealth, right? The idea that you should have three to six months worth of living expenses, the idea that you should have X amount in retirement by X age, whatever it is, all of those metrics are based on people being able to save, people not having debt, people not sending money back to their parents. There are different financial obligations that I found that my POC clients have had that have had us need to adjust the metrics. And I'll give you an example. One thing in particular is a lot of my clients had debt and they had been spending years and years and years trying to pay down debt and they couldn't figure out why the debt never went away. And one of the reasons why is because we've been taught traditionally that debt is bad and you should get rid of debt as fast as possible. And what ended up happening was they were putting all of their extra resources towards debt and none of it towards savings. Mm -hmm. And so inevitably something unexpected would come up that was outside of their control and because they didn't have savings, they would put money back on the credit card. Mm -hmm. And the debt cycle just continued for years and years and years. So for a lot of our clients, it's, hey, have $1,000 of savings in the bank. And then the next level is, hey, now let's try and have one month's worth of savings in the bank. And then two months worth of savings. Or you know, just have three months worth of rent saved. So you have that cushion. And you know that if something unexpected were to happen, you're not messing up your debt pay down plan. You're not having to scramble. You're not having to borrow money from other family members if that was necessary. And so even little tweaks like that make such a difference. And I think that by working with our clients very closely, we meet with them every single month, there is this like understanding that it's not just about setting aside the money, but also about habit change, right? And also about behavioral change and understanding that while your behaviors are not the thing that got you there, there are behaviors that you may need to change to make sure that your habits are helping you thrive and not just helping you survive. And I think that goes back to the mindset change, right? Like mm -hmm. we, as a person that hasn't had, you know, hasn't come from much, when you have that scarcity mindset, it's hard to shift out of that. But I want to back up to something that you said when you're describing the clients that you work with, like the clients that you work with are first generation, typically either here, first generation immigrants, first generation you know, college graduates, first generation, probably, you know, making six inch, six figure income. And when you take all those things and then you have the normal metrics that you measure things by, like in our families, because you described me, I'm the first person to be graduate college. 
I'm the first person to make six figures in my family. I'm the first person to not only to own my home, right? Like yeah. the second person, my grandparents own their home, the other kids, like all of those things are so we're talking about navigating home ownership and we're talking about navigating maybe the idea of having rentals, buying real estate. We're talking about all those things. I don't have someone in my family that I can look back to and be like, hey, what did you do? It's me that has to figure it out. And I think what you're saying is we have to understand that and change as a financial planner and as a client, understanding like we need to understand our clients. Yeah. And I think that we do a poor job of really recognizing how deeply seated some of those things are. And this is why I started talking about the mindset. So I want to fast forward back to the mindset. So the reason why I think mindset is so important is because you have all of these things going on in the background, right? Like I said, first generation this, first homeowner, first that, first this. And now we're saying, you should have three months of this. You should be ready to retire at 65. You should be ready. And they're like, well, now that I'm here, at this level of income and at this level of success amongst minorities in the other person's world, in the white world, I'm not successful at all. Yeah. So I have to balance how I'm successful here, right? And looked at like an admired, if you will, looked up to the one that's supposed to have all the answers. And then in this other world, I'm like nothing. Failing. I've done nothing yeah. and, I, and, I, and I don't know how to do that. And so now we come to the planner right? And the planner saying, this is what the CFP says. You need to have three to six months. And if you don't have three to six months, you ain't shit. You know what I mean? And so now we're sitting here. And so there's always an element of shame that is placed around mm. finance, especially when it comes to minorities, because we just don't have it all together the way that other people have. And the reason why we don't is because there's been generations of that. So yes. let's talk about that. Let's break down the racial wealth gap divide. I think that's a perfect time to segue into that. I agree with everything that you said in so many ways. I love how you broke it down because I think that what it comes down to is there's so much about personal finance that there's a lot of personal responsibility around that, right? Like I should be doing better. I should have known better. I should have more, all of this stuff. When the reality is there is this generational systemic racism and oppression that has affected POC economically. And there's no denying that. I mean, if we talk about the racial wealth divide, a lot of well, people... Let me jump in. Yeah. Economically, emotionally, socially, mm -hmm. there's not just economics. Because I think the social okay. aspect of this, because this is where you get the, we want to look like we made it. And so mm. this will go into the, we need to purchase some, we need instant gratification and instant approval from people that we don't know to let them know that we have made it. This is why yes. we have the cars. This is why we have the bigger houses than we can afford. This is why we may have jewelry. This is why we may have whatever we have, because we're trying to impress someone that we really shouldn't worry about. Now, go ahead. Sorry, didn't mean to yes. interrupt, but I just wanted no, to. No, I mean, I actually am what, have you talked about the marshmallow test on this show yet? Are you familiar with the marshmallow I test? I know what you're talking about. I don't know if we, yeah. go ahead, let's talk about it. Let's yeah, talk about because it. this, I think, is the root of the racial wealth divide versus personal responsibility, right? So if you're not familiar with the marshmallow test, basically, what they did was they took these young kids and they put them in a room and they put a marshmallow in front of them and they said, okay, kid, you can eat this marshmallow now or if you wait five minutes, mm -hmm. I'll come back and I'll bring a second marshmallow. If you don't eat this one, you get two marshmallows, mm -hmm. right? And their theory was, oh, so if a kid can delay their gratification for five minutes, if they can hold off on eating that first marshmallow, that is a predictor of their ability to have self-control, to have willpower, and ultimately to like them having success in the future, right? 
And so that was the theory. And you watch these kids like not eat the marshmallow, eat the marshmallow, whatever it was. And they found that like the kids who didn't eat the marshmallow had more success in life. Now, a lot of people have tried to recreate the marshmallow test. And what they found was that the marshmallow test was not an indicator of delayed gratification, of willpower, of the ability to like have self-control. It was an indicator of socioeconomic class. And what they realized when they dug deeper was they found that the kids who ate the marshmallow first were in a lower socioeconomic background. They had lower income. And so tomorrow was not promised to them. The idea that there was going to be food the next day was not promised to them. So when an adult comes in and tells you, if you just wait a little bit, I'll give you another marshmallow, they didn't believe them. Mm -hmm. At that age, at five, six, seven years old, they already know like, no, I need to eat the marshmallow now. Mm -hmm. And that translates to, no, I need to buy the car now. I need to buy the shoes now. I need to buy X, Y, Z now. And it has nothing to do with like lack of self-control or lack of willpower, but just like growing up knowing that tomorrow's not promised. So the idea of keeping money in a savings account when your history is like banks take money from poor people, right? Banks charge you overdraft fees. That money doesn't stay in the bank account. It ends up going to other people. So why not buy myself the thing that I want now? That like social and emotional thing that you were just talking about is so critical to understanding the economics of this. And I think that when you look at the policies that were put in place to actually create and perpetuate the racial wealth divide, we can start to see really like where all of this came from, right? And if we look at, I don't know, how far back do you want me to go, Emlyn? No, I'm just, I'm thinking about it like <laughs> just in terms of marshmallows. Like we yeah. didn't have marshmallows at the house. Like I got that at my friend's house. When uh, I went over there. Like that wasn't even coming up. Like that wasn't even yeah. like to think about that. I remember to this day, hmm. right now, we go to the store. I remember one of my buddies that lived next door to me. I remember his name. I'm not going to put him on blast, but I remember their family, not blast, but just put him out there. Their family had, I remember he would make these peanut butter and marshmallow sandwiches. Oh. Whoa. Oh, man. Like, it was like the, you know, the little can of marshmallows you can get. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, right? Yeah. I remember the first time I was able to purchase that on my own. And it was just like such a, and it was like marshmallows, right? Marshmallows, peanut butter, toast the bread a little bit. You know what I mean? Get a little milk. I mean, it was heaven, right? Yeah. You're not going to set a marshmallow in front of me and I'm not going to eat it when I haven't had a marshmallow because we didn't have them. You didn't have them, for real. And that was more about what we could afford than any habits that I was forming. It was that I couldn't, you can't put something in front of someone that's never experienced these great things and expect them not to do it. Like I'm here. And I said this on the last show that we did. We always talk about, you know, having a seat at the table. We want to have a seat at the table. I don't want to seat at the table. I want to eat at the table. I'm not just here to be at the table. Like make me a marshmallow and peanut butter sandwich. Give me a glass of milk and let me eat. And so I think that's what I felt when you said it. So Hmm. Please continue your thought. I just hmm. had to interject. Oh my that. God. You just made me like think about how I always wanted Lunchables when I was a kid. And my mom was like, we can't afford Lunchables. Yeah. Walk past them. Walk yeah. past them. Like Everything. I remember back in the day when I was in school, like the kids that got hot lunch, me, mm-hmm. were made fun of mm-hmm. because yep. you couldn't bring cold lunch to school. Yeah. And so they're running this, like I remember now, like, I know what it's like for my daughters to be like, hey, we want to take a lunch. And I'm like, well, we got to show out for lunch. Then we're getting Lunchables. You know what I mean? Yeah, we, totally. We're getting lunch. We get you a Lunchable now. But I mean, it's those little things that I think that they stick in the back of your mind. And a lot of times you never bring them up and you never talk through those feelings. And then those things will also go into your financial life. And they'll go into other aspects of your life where you normally wouldn't think that they would pop up. 
but that's where I'm talking about that scarcity mindset and that, you know, being scared yeah. of not having something or missing out on opportunities. So yeah, I'm sorry. I just railroaded the whole question, but we're talking about the wealth oh. and all that stuff. But that's, I mean, but that's super real though, because like you can hear, like I'll share the stats with you, right? They're staggering. Mm-hmm. They're awful. Mm-hmm. The current stat right now is it'll take 242 years for the average black family to catch up to the wealth of a white family today, right? And in case you were wondering, slavery in the United States lasted 245 years. Mm -hmm. Those numbers are not accidents. And so if you think about how many generations of catching up have been happening and need to happen for black families and how the racial wealth divide is currently widening, like you're going to eat the fucking marshmallow, right? If you look at the numbers today, white families have 10 times the wealth of the average black family today. And a lot of that has to do with home ownership. And a lot of that has to do with the government subsidizing a middle class in the 50s, but specifically subsidizing a white middle class. When you look at how the Federal Housing Administration, for instance, in the 1930s, they sanctioned redlining. Redlining, they literally drew red lines on a map and they said, if you sell a house to a black person in this neighborhood, we are not going to lend them money. And so the FHA actually subsidized suburbs in the 1930s but they told developers, they said, you can only sell these homes to white families or we, the federal government, will not subsidize this suburb. And so redlining was something that was sanctioned by the government. If you look at things like the GI Bill, if you look at universal policies, right? Like we talk a lot, I think about on our podcast about, you know, can we do race neutral policies? Can we have policies, right, where welfare is for everyone, universal health care for everyone, like everyone gets this benefit, right? Why do we have to specifically make sure that Black and Latinx people have additional benefits? And the reason why is because things like the GI Bill. So technically in the 40s with the GI Bill, everyone had access to higher education and had access to VA loans where they didn't have to put anything down for a mortgage. The problem was that the people who administered the GI Bill were people and they were racist people. And so they denied Black veterans who technically had access to the GI Bill the ability to get these VA loans and the ability to be homeowners in the 1940s. They denied them the ability to go to college. They actually purposely pushed a lot of Black veterans towards vocational schools and not higher education and not universities. And so while these policies were in place that were universal for everyone, the people who administered them were denying these programs and were denying these benefits from a lot of Black families. And so a lot of people are like, well, that was so long ago. Like, you know, it doesn't matter now. I never owned slaves, whatever excuse they have, right? And the thing is, yes, it was so long ago. And if you think about how many generations of home ownership, Black families and Latinx families were denied, that's how all of this compounds. That's how white families have 10 times the wealth of Black families today. Because so many policies were put in place and sanctioned by the government to build up a middle class that was pretty much white. And people have to understand that the reason why there's always the comparison to black and white is because we've been here since the beginning of the United States. We have the longest history here in this country. So we have the longest history of mistreating, being mistreated by Mm -hmm. colonizers. We have the longest history of that. So I was waiting for you to get to that where you talk about the time because my grandfather bought his first home. He was born in 1926. Okay. Mm. So he lived through a whole bunch of stuff in Alabama, by the way. Cool. So yeah. we have that, right? And then we look at, so we had 1926, we got that going on. He didn't buy his first house until the 70s. My grandfather uh-huh. was 
in his 50s when he was able to purchase his home house as a veteran. Yeah. So he bought his house in the 70s. Do you think that that impacted the ability to create wealth? Yes. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Because he bought his house in, I don't know what year it was. I know he retired in 72 and he bought the house for like $27,000. And when he bought the house for $27,000, can you imagine? $27,000. That's all he spent on the house. And now the house is worth, you know, it's worth a lot more. But imagine if that could have been his second house. Like he didn't have the chance to like upgrade his house to another home. He didn't buy his house in the 40s, right? Yeah. He didn't buy his house in the 40s, then he didn't buy another one. Family in... in that house. No. He didn't pass that house down to his kids so he could buy a second house. No. Which is what a lot of white families were able to do. And we weren't able to do that. And so that's yeah. where all the stuff came from. So I'm just like, oh man. So anyhow, you were on one too. So I feel like I just messed up your momentum. I'm, my bad. No. I tell you that we're no. doing double dutch and we we're both gone and I hit the rope. My bad. No, it's all good. Because I think these personal stories that we're sharing are so integral to understanding the racial wealth divide, right? Because I think that the stats don't tell the story. Mm -hmm. I think the stats are startling. I think they are shocking. I think they are awful. But I think that they don't really tell the whole story of how this has affected so many generations of people, Mm -hmm. right? And I think like what you said about why we have to talk about black and white is because it is the longest point in history, right? It is the longest point in history where Black people have been continually denied these benefits. And if you think about how people say like, oh, you just need to work harder. Oh, you just need to like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And then you go back in the history and you see that the government literally funded an entire white middle class to exist. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. There's also this amnesia that happens when you go one generation forward and you're like, oh, well, I'm doing just fine. I have this much in savings and I have this job and all this stuff. And it's because your parents were able to buy a home in the 70s. They were able to buy a home in the 40s. Your grandparents were able to buy that home in the 40s. And that generational wealth compounds to the point where you forget that, hey, the reason why you got here, the reason why you're able to have three to six months worth of living expenses is because of all of the generations before you. And we can't forget that, right? And we can't discount that. And it's always that like i didn't do this i didn't do that and people talk about well slavery was so long ago and i've said it on this show many times and i'm gonna say it again my grandmother told me stories of her grandfather talking to her about Mm -hmm. when the when the slaves were freed this is like i'm hearing second person stories about slavery yeah second person it wasn't that long ago and if they think that it's not like people that like why are you so upset why are they doing the riots? Why are they? So I'm not even going to get into that because that's a whole nother show. But it's just like people that don't understand history, don't understand how these things have already happened and have continued to happen. This isn't like everything from the redlining to the government, like Democrats and Republicans, both. I don't care. People sit here. Oh, I'm a Democrat because they help black people. No, they didn't. I'm a Republican because the original Democrat Party was from the South. Doesn't matter because both of them did things to us. And this is as recent as the late 80s. I would sit here and talk about Ronald Reagan and I'm not trying to get political, but we gonna get real. Like, let's talk about that. Let's talk about his war on drugs or war on black people. Cause that's what it was because black people have the lowest propensity. We use that economic word, the lowest propensity to actually use drugs. 
but the entire war on drugs, like it's statistically proven that black people have the lowest propensity to use drugs. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and I have a quote. I mean, oh, there the Nixon aide, if we're going to talk about the war on drugs, what is his name? John Ehrlichman mm-hmm. literally said, this is his quote, direct mm-hmm. quote in 2016. This was on CNN. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing them both heavily, we could disrupt these communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. He literally admitted to this. Is this motherfucker in jail? No, he died a happy old man. He admitted to it. He admitted that the war on drugs was targeting black people and hippies. And the thing that's so frustrating is, you know, a lot of the work that my husband and I have been doing are around how art and media and culture have perpetuated the racial wealth divide and have really created this common sense, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that the war on drugs and this idea that black people are, you know, more prone to using drugs because that's who the war on drugs was on, right? Mm -hmm. And all of that stuff, all of those stories, all of the art and media that was created around that, even when Richard Nixon's aide admitted that it was straight up targeting black people and hippies, no consequences. And we still believe these things. And the crazy part is, 13% 13% of the American population is black, but, you know, over 40% of the population in prison is black. Yep. Somehow. Somehow. And then so we go on to Reagan, right? Reagan didn't do any better. That was, you know, his wife, Nancy, that started the Just Say No campaign, continuing mm-hmm. on the drugs. So what the Democrats do? Oh, yeah, let's talk about mandatory minimums, because that's when the Clintons came in and made mandatory minimums. Yep. And so now we have underrepresentation, like you're poor, you're from the hood, you can't afford a lawyer, an attorney. So if you go to trial, you can get 15 years, or if you just take this deal, you get three. And that's a mandatory minimum for having possession of, you know, for using drugs. And let's talk about this. Like, we're going to take a full circle since you got me on one right now. So this is what happened with my mom. My mom died from a drug overdose in 2002. Mm -hmm. And she was in and out of prison, not because she sold drugs, because she used drugs. At the same time, had she been white, she wouldn't have been in jail. She'd have been in the drug rehab program. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand I just said about the propensity to use. She did that. That was her thing. I'm not making that. I'm not. She did that. She needed help. She didn't need to be in prison. But mandatory minimums that were instituted by the Democratic Party after the Republicans had started the war on us because they were losing sight. Because you see, you had two Republican presidents back to back. Nixon and, well, you had Jimmy Carter, which that was horrible. Then you had Reagan after that. Yep. And so what happens is you've created this system that people can't get out of. And now I'm a product of that system. Like we live, you know, we had our apartments, you have your income housing, blah, blah, blah. We have all that stuff. And that's where I'm a product of. And just by chance, mm. things align and I actually be able to become an entrepreneur and build a business and kind of start breaking these generational curses that have been placed on us. Not by our people's inability to work, not by because we didn't have work ethic, not because we didn't want to change, because the government said they could take care of us. And the way they took care of us is by removing the man out of the family and sending him to jail and all the other stuff that goes on in to against the black community from our lovely government. So I'm not big government. I'm not into that at all. But just I don't know. I mean, you got me in my feels here right now. I don't even know. We're supposed to go somewhere. Else. Let's talk about uh 
Yeah. I'm in all my fields. I'm always in my fields <laughs> about this stuff for real. Because the thing is, it's so interesting because we recently hired a lead financial planner last year because I went on maternity leave. And mm-hmm. it was interesting because she came from wealth management and she was able to somehow finagle being able to work with people who weren't wealthy. So she had a little bit of background in that. And then she came to work for Brunch and Budget. And one of the things that I will never forget her saying is she said, I knew about the racial wealth divide academically. I understood it intellectually, Mm -hmm. but it was only until I started working with our clients that I actually saw the effects of it viscerally. Mm -hmm. When you actually start to like hear the stories. And I think too, the thing about stats is they're easy to dismiss, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing about stats is they're easy to be like, oh, well, that's because X, Y, Z. But when you hear the actual stories, like the stories that you're sharing, I think it's so powerful in terms of people understanding like, no, the racial wealth divide affects real ass people who you care about. Mm-hmm. The racial wealth divide affects someone that you know. And when we look at the prison industrial complex and we look at all of these big systems that feel so overwhelming and so daunting to change, right? And to correct or to fix or whatever it is, I think these stories that you're sharing yourself and on the podcast are so incredibly powerful for people to really understand like this affects all of us. This affects all of us. And when we address who it affects the most, then all of us will benefit. Mm-hmm. And that's why we talk about black and white. That's why we talk about helping black people, mm-hmm. right? Because when you address who it affects the most, you help everyone. And that's like, because like you're saying, black people were basically immigrants coming yeah. to this country against their own free will. And so we're going to get off of this after this. We're going to talk about business models to help serve. But <laughs> if you really think about it, the treatment of Native Americans and Black people, African slaves, mm-hmm. truly embodies what America is all about. Oh, yeah. We can even say all the way, down, like the treatment of, and people are like, that's not, understand, <laughs> the treatment of Native Americans and African slaves that turn to Black people, because I'm just Black now, I don't even call myself African American, I'm Black, is a true, true, true insight into how America treats people of color. Mm-hmm. Period. Business Drop models. Like. <laughs> Let's talk about business models now. So how do you make a business model that can help serve more people? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that I always toy around with. That's the thing that I'm always experimenting with. I've been experimenting. I started Brunch and Budget full-time in 2015, and I've been experimenting with a lot of business models. One of the things that I really landed on that works is to have a sliding scale pricing. Hmm. So I price my services based on income. Mm -hmm. It's funny because I've gotten literally like Twitter yelled at for it. They're like, that's not fair. How are you going to charge someone based on their income? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. That's like awful. And when you think about it, that's what we do with AUM too. Mm -hmm. We charge based on a percentage of what their assets are. And so the more assets you have, the more money you pay to have them managed, period, Mm -hmm. right? So the more income you have, the more you pay to have it managed because usually when someone has more income, there's more to manage in general, right? There's more financial planning that needs to be done. And so it worked out from a business standpoint and also worked out from an accessibility standpoint where clients who didn't have as much income coming in, but needed as much financial help or needed financial help in different ways were able to access the service the same as someone who was making more income. Mm -hmm. And there was this sense of like, okay, now it can be accessible for more people. And the other thing that I found with our business model and how we need to, 
I would call it a service model really, because we actually meet with our clients every single month. So we have a 12 month program where we meet with a client every single month. We put together their entire financial plan and then meet with them every single month and do financial coaching and financial planning for at least one year Mm -hmm. and often longer because one year builds that foundation. And one year gets you to the point where you're like, Oh, I understand what's going on. I understand how to advocate for myself. I understand how to save. I understand what my habits are and I understand my relationship with money. Right. And we do all of those things together. And also the insurance and the investments and the estate planning and all of those things happen in between. But when you meet with someone regularly about their finances, and we did this because we realized that our clients are afraid to look at their money. Our clients are literally afraid to look at their cash flow and look at where their money is going. And so they often need some virtual handholding when it comes to not only looking at their cash flow, but like setting up their 401k. Like we literally do screen shares with clients and we actually like set up their 401k with them. And I've called so many collections agencies on a client's behalf because Mm -hmm. they're just afraid to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're afraid to talk. And I think that a big part of our business model and our service model was based around really recognizing what our clients needed and really recognizing like, Hey, this is really scary stuff. And it's truly stuff that's paralyzing for people. So how do we help them through that? So they eventually get to a point where they can do it themselves. I always say that I feel like that my job shouldn't exist. I feel like the fact that you have to pay someone to navigate a financial system that is this complex Mm -hmm. is bullshit, right? Like, why do you have to pay someone to navigate your finances? Because the system has gotten so complex and the industry has gotten so complex and so opaque and so non-transparent that you do need someone to advocate for you and you do need someone to be there and guide you. And so there's this like interesting push and pull that I feel like we do of, yes, like we understand we need to charge for our services, but we also understand that our ultimate goal is to work ourselves out of a job. Our ultimate goal is to get to a point in the industry where this isn't how it has to be anymore. And believe me, there will be plenty of other things to do, right? It's one of those things where when I keep that in mind and when I remember that like this is the goal for our clients and this is the goal for the industry, that that's really where change happens. Because if you continue to make money based on things not changing, even though you know how fucked up the system is, Mm -hmm. then the system is going to stay how it is. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be working on both sides of the system in that sense. And that's really where the business model and the service model comes from. I love that. I mean, it's very similar to what we do, except for the percentages, but the meeting with people changing their money relationship, because it is that it's a relationship. If you look up what a textbook definition of a relationship is, and you talk about how people deal with their money. It is a relationship and it's a bad one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we need to fix it. So we're in the relationship repair business. And then after that, and that could take some time. Like mm-hmm. we probably should be, there is just some time that it's going to take, like 12 months at least. Mm-hmm. And then most of the time they're going on further than that. Pam, we could go in so many different directions and we're definitely going to have you back. I want to get to these questions. As you know, this is the Minority Money Podcast where we're changing the complexion of wealth. And with that, what motivates and inspires you to continue to grow and lead and learn? Oh, oh my gosh. I feel like that the people that we work with, really, I feel like my clients really do that for me. There are days where I definitely get up and I'm like, oh my God, this is never going to change. This is futile. Everything that we're doing is going to lead to nothing. And then you meet with some clients and you say one thing that like kind of changes their mindset, right? And all of a sudden you're like, oh wait, 
like maybe this is working, mm-hmm. like maybe we can keep moving forward. And I think that all of our clients are inspiring in so many different ways that to be able to work with them and to be able to really see them grow and to be able to see those aha moments are really what keeps me going. That's awesome. I mean, you got to love those clients, man. They really do make a difference because you could be having a terrible day and get something mm-hmm. from a client like, thank you so much. You helped me. Like, oh, this is why I'm doing it. So that makes complete sense. Do you think education plays a big part in wealth building? Yes and no. I think the problem with education and wealth building and the problem with financial literacy is that a lot of people have decided that that's the only thing that you need. Mm-hmm. You just need to be more educated. You just <laughs> need to know more, right? You just need to understand compound interest. You need to understand blah, blah, blah. If only you had more knowledge about finances, then you wouldn't be in this situation. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> It's already problematic right there. And I think a lot of people stop at education without trying to understand the bigger picture and how to address the systemic stuff. So I do think education is a critical part in building wealth in terms of understanding how the systems work and things like that. But I think that the thing that's problematic about it is a lot of people think that education is the only part in building wealth. And it's the only thing that's missing for people when it comes Mm -hmm. to building wealth. And it's not. There's a lot more to it. If you could offer a piece of advice to our listeners, what would that be? Oh, man. Just one piece of advice? (laughs) (laughs) One of the best pieces of financial advice that I ever got is where you spend your money is a representation of what you value. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are taught to not think about spending money that way. Mm. We're taught to think about spending money as consumers. We're taught to think about spending money as something that you just do without thinking about it very much. And when I heard that phrase, where you spend your money is a representation of what you value, it started having me question why I was spending money in certain places and why I was spending money on certain things. And one thing that I encourage my clients to do is if you want to spend a week just doing a little bit of mindful spending, and what's interesting with COVID that I've noticed is a lot of my clients like took a dip in their spending at the beginning of COVID. Mm-hmm. And now that we're like six months in, we're seeing another peak of it. It's because we're all kind of bored. We're all kind of tired of this. We're all kind of trying to do something new. And I think what I want to encourage people to do is before you buy something, just to ask yourself why. Mm-hmm. You don't have to not buy it. I don't mm-hmm. care if you buy it or not. I just want you to know why you're doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And that will get you closer and closer to the point where you start to feel like you're actually spending money on things you value. And not spending money on things just because you feel like you should be, just because of peer pressure, just because of convenience, just because of, you know, you want the marshmallow, right? Like we yeah. were saying. Like, do you even really want the marshmallow? Right. I want you to ask yourself that right. when you're spending money. I love that. Conscious spending is what, what we call it, but that's exactly what it is. Like just being mindful and making sure that you understand where your money's at. But mm-hmm. on the flip side of that, I will say that Technology has made it so easy to spend money unconsciously. So you can't align those values with what you like. Apple Pay, Google Pay, tap your card, all the things that you can do. So you can actually not even think about the transaction. But, you know, we're saying still be conscious about that. Pam, this is a great conversation. We will have to do this again. And I think we might even have someone else join you when we do this. So we can really just dig in on some of this racial wealth divide. But Thank you for coming. I appreciate you. And thanks for, you know, there was never a time when we couldn't get to get, like we didn't talk. So I always knew what was going on. You always knew what was going on. And it was just a pleasure to have you on the show, man. 
Thank you so much for having me. If people want to get more of Pam, where can they find you? What social medias are you active on? Oh, yeah. Instagram in particular, we're very active on. So at Brunch and Budget on Instagram, you can go to brunchandbudget.com. I'm sometimes on Twitter, but I'm usually just retweeting people smarter than me. (laughs) Also at Brunch and Budget on Twitter. And I just set up a TikTok, but there's only one video. So be nice. (laughs) TikTok. Oh, you know what? I haven't made the jump yet. I have not made the jump yet, but I don't know. We'll see what what happens. But thank you again, Pam. It's been a pleasure. And we'll be reconnecting very, very soon. As you all know, this is the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here and until next time.